exceptional performance. The Leaders Podcast. This podcast is an introduction to the 10 essential elements to achieve an exceptional performance culture. Episode by episode, we break down five elements in planning, the what, and five elements in leadership, the how, by having experts share their experience, knowledge, and expertise in realizing these essential elements. In our first five episodes, the what, or the planning elements, were explored. They can be revisited at ProductiveLeadership.com. The how, or the leadership elements, are explored in our last five episodes. Episode 6, we take a look at leading performance, accountability, and communication. Next, in Episode 7, we explore culture, first by defining the desired operating culture, then in Episode 8, by measuring the current culture, Episode 9, leading the desired culture, and finally, in Episode 10, embedding the desired culture, the last podcast in this series. Rob, as we move into the how elements in these coming episodes, can you explain why leadership is so important to implementation? Well, it's critical. And, you know, frankly, we say to clients all the time, we'd rather see you guys write a mediocre plan that's well implemented than the other way around. Uh, The performance is, in our, again, in our experience, the the separation factor is much more dependent on implementation. So here's where, in our uh, experience with clients, things really kick in. If you've got a strong leadership team and leadership at all levels, implementation is very tight. Uh, It's not unusual to see a real lift in the business. What are the functional components of performance leadership? Well, no one likes to be supervised in this day and age, but leaders shouldn't abdicate their responsibilities uh, for leading the effective implementation of the business plan. In our experience, the right approach addresses four important considerations. First, am I and my team members doing what we signed up to do in the plan? Second, if not, why not? Third, if so, is the plan working? Is it having the desired effect? And fourth, if not, (laughs) why not? So let's look at each of those in turn. For the first leadership component in performance leadership, the question is, am I and my team members doing what we signed up to do? Now, this question is not intellectually challenging, but as they say, common sense is uncommonly practiced. In our travels, we see only a minority of team leaders who set up a disciplined approach to tracking activity metrics, doing so accurately, and then reviewing them for insights and understanding that might affect the original plan. So let me use an example. Uh, Most of our clients have a sales team that plays a significant role in the marketing mix of their business plans, particularly in the retail merchandising business, in the pharmaceutical and biotech businesses. It's become the norm for these organizations to identify what they call field activity metrics, such as days on territory, sales calls per day, call quality, calls by audience segment, etc., Now, most of our clients are very rigorous, and some would say too rigorous, about tracking activity like calls per day, but really don't look enough at things like efficacy. Uh, But essentially, they should be measuring and managing the activity of the resources that have signed up through those implementation plans to carry out, you know, certain critical activities. Now, what we typically see, unfortunately, is the planning committee throws, like marketing and strategy groups, they throw the business plan over the fence to the implementation teams, and then there isn't a disciplined approach to communicating in terms of follow-up. And this is a big mistake in our experience. Now, if the team members are executing what they've committed to in the various implementation departments, a couple things can come out of that. One, they're executing at a very high level. 
and there's good follow-up from the team leaders to check on the execution in a schedule that's been agreed to in advance with the planning committee. And let's say everything's going according to Hoyle, that the plan is being extremely well implemented at all levels, and it's working. Okay, great. Well, it's good for the planning committee to know that the strategy does work. Now, there are often times that implementation is measured at a high level, but it's not working, or at least in some parts it's not working. And it's up to those sub-teams to report back to the planning folks which elements aren't effective and have they run into any obstacles that were unforeseen. So that part of reporting back up to the planning committee is critical. The second aspect is if something's not working, why not? And that again, that closes the loop in terms of intelligence from a planning and implementation perspective. And this is where the people who are leading implementation really have to step up and provide insight, not just that something isn't effective, but why not? Uh, what's the deeper understanding that the planning team has to have? So let me give you an example. Uh, recently, we had a director of operations who committed to reducing cost of inventory from $2 million to $1 million by year end without negatively affecting the service levels. And her first identified implementation task was to hire for the open inventory manager. By the end of that month, no activity had happened in the recruiting area. And the team leader could have just shrugged her shoulders and said, oh, well, uh, you know, she'll get to it, which is surprisingly common. Or the team leader could launch into a severe, severe criticism of her at month end and just say, you know, you're falling behind your plan. Now get it done or else. But that's not a very appealing approach, particularly when the why question would have eliminated the risk of a bad assumption on the leader's part, the risk of not knowing what's really going on. So that why question, when it was asked, uh, allowed the operations director to share with the team leader from the planning committee uh, what was the background of the obstacles that were getting in the way of hiring that inventory manager. First of all, uh, there was some unexpected competitive activity which got in the way. Second of all, uh, there was quite a bit of skill gap when it came to the hiring process for the director of operations. She was relatively new to the company, wasn't as comfortable and familiar with HR policy, didn't know when, when not to use recruiters. So there was a bit of a training opportunity there for the team leader. And then you could also look for it. In this case, there wasn't any of this, but there could be like an attitude issue where someone is hesitant because they just don't feeling comfortable, don't have a positive attitude towards achieving the desired outcome. So those kinds of leadership skills, being able to uh, help the implementation team identify what's going right and why and what's not going right and getting a deeper understanding of what's getting in the way. And in particular, what are the obstacles that can be removed for the plan to be successful that may have been unforeseen at the beginning? What do good performance leaders do to uncover these obstacles? Well, the first thing that we see that separates the great ones from the average uh, performance leaders they sit down with their implementation teams and they agree up front to regularly reporting the metrics for success. So they could be monthly meetings or weekly huddles or email exchanges, but it's negotiated between the folks getting the job done and those who are monitoring the success. So let's take an example. So let's say you've got, again, this director of operations and uh, according to the implementation plan, everything's on schedule. And that's being reported on, let's say, a weekly basis. Well, after the attaboy, which is important to, to, to provide so that the right behavior is being reinforced, 
it's important to feed outcomes back to the implementation or sorry to the strategic committee from the implementation teams especially if it's a critical element of the plan so that they know the plan is working and they don't lose confidence because if you don't close the feedback loop effectively then you run the risk of the organization losing confidence and even forgetting that certain things were to be done in a certain order and we we've seen uh, good plans and the folks behind good plans lose their nerve in supporting a new strategy. Remember, the only people who like change are wet babies. So if we go back to the example of the director of operations, who's expected to lead the charge in reducing cost of inventory by a million dollars. This will free up cash over the course of the year to fund new advertising push. Even though everyone agreed that the inventory problem would not be solved overnight and the cash flow improvement would largely be realized in the fourth quarter, it wouldn't be unusual for the commercial team to get a little antsy and uh, be assertive in following up at the end of the first month if they don't see immediate results. But if everybody agrees after the implementation teams come back and vet their plan that this is how things are going to proceed, then it just keeps the whole process uh, on track when you have those regularly scheduled touch points between planning committee and the implementation teams. But what if you have a plan that's just not working? Well, let's take that scenario we were just talking about where an employee is delivering exactly the activity levels that were promised and the plan is not delivering the results. So we go back and look at our director of operations. You know, she's done everything on schedule in the implementation time, hired the inventory manager, completed the assessment of slow-moving items, wrote off non-moving items, sold off over $250,000 of slow inventory, but the inventory costs went up by another 500000 to $2.5 million. Well, can you feel a why question coming? I, I, I certainly can. And even though this is obviously bad news to the business, um, in this example, her following the plan and living up to her commitments allowed the entire operations team to take a disciplined root cause analysis approach and isolate the variable that was fouling up performance. And they found out that demand forecasting was way off, that the marketing team was not uh, hitting their targets when it came to demand forecasting. So that made it much easier for them to solve the problem in a very disciplined way. Rob, can you explain why in this podcast we're about to pay a fair amount of attention to culture? Well, yeah, I'm excited about this next section, and we're going to spend uh, the next three or four of our episodes in this podcast series looking specifically at best practices in the defining the measurement and the leadership of culture. Because when you really look at what separates exceptional performance organizations from the mediocre, this, in our opinion, is the most important ingredient. Now, there is a sequencing, and you have to have the first couple of ingredients here that we've been spending a fair amount of time talking about in the first few podcasts. You have to have the right people on the bus, they have to be able to develop a plan that is going to work and that they're tracking and monitoring. But what's the environment on the bus, so to speak? Does it draw the best from the people? Does it uh, get from them the biggest amount of discretionary effort? Um, You know, many of our listeners can relate to situations in their career where they've worked for, say, a bad boss or in a bad environment. You just don't feel like giving it your all every day. I've interviewed numbers of employees over the years and I've heard stories of people having to steal themselves in the shower for an extra 10 minutes just to make it into work, and that's at the negative end of the extreme. And There are others who go to work and say, you know, really? I don't know why they pay me to do this. I just love working for this company or in this environment or for this boss. So obviously, when you can get a high amount of discretionary effort from people so they have more wow days than woe days, you can really see a multiplier effect uh, 
in the business. It reminds me of a story I caught up with a, a leader of an organization just a few weeks ago that I've known for quite a long time. And we were talking about performance in the category. Now, they run a biotech company in Canada. And one of their salespeople who resides in Halifax has the same territory potential as the other nine clinical specialists across the country, but he sells two and a half times number two. And I remember asking her, how is that? Like, what explains that? And she said, quite simply, his wife has MS. So he doesn't need a kick in the butt to get out of bed every morning or to be encouraged to go make another call or attend evening events or really try to work smart throughout his day. He just does it for another reason. And the point of the story, as we were reflecting back on it, wasn't to just hire people that your company's products serve uh, or serve their families, whether it's in biotech or other products, but the important thing is to think, what's the environment that we can surround ourselves with, our employees with, and ourselves with, that will allow us to all operate at peak performance on more days than not? Um, the, the effect on business, it isn't un, un, it's, not, it's not a surprising thing for us to see an example like that where somebody's performance two and a half times his peer group, and these are competent folks when they're highly engaged. Culture, it creates the opportunity for people to be engaged. If you have negative elements in your culture, you're creating what we call entropy or root causes for people to want to disengage. Their values aren't aligned with their, with their employer. If you create an environment where they can bring themselves to work every day, they can give that extra effort or that bring that extra focus and energy to their work, and the results speak for themselves. They've been well-measured and well-documented. One of our favorite authors on this is a gentleman named Raj Sisodia who wrote Firms of Endearment and then the follow-up deep dive into the whole foods culture uh, called Conscious Capitalism, some great examples in both of those books. But I go back to a story I heard back in the late 70s uh, for an explanation of culture. It's a chemistry teacher who was a little ahead of his time as an, an environmental activist. He was keen to demonstrate the impact of the environment on the health, well-being, and performance of the human species. When class arrived one morning for lab work, each group of four students noticed a small box of those little breakfast cereal of Rice Krispies, a beaker of milk, and a beaker containing some kind of odorous liquid or sludge and then two large empty Petri dishes on their lab tables. The teacher was quick to point out to the curious and snickering students that they should refrain from opening the cereal box and definitely not play with the smelly sludge. He spent a few minutes, he explained the origin of both the Rice Krispies, the humble Rice Krispies as he called them, and the sludge. First, the small box of Rice Krispies were the remnants of those, you know, those 12 packs of fun cereals that we all remember. Um, and we always ate the Rice Krispies last and ate all the sugar pops and frosted flakes. Well, his household, it was no different. So he had a bunch of these lying around. The sludge was a replication that he had concocted in his lab of something that had happened just in a previous couple of years in Niagara Falls, New York. If people listening to the podcasts have heard of it or can Google it, there was a scenario called the Love Canal, and it was a contamination of a schoolyard in a neighborhood from an industrial uh, manufacturer in the petrochemical business in on Grand Island and near Niagara Falls. And it really caused a lot of issues. There was uh, birth defects. There was a, uh, a very negative impact on a neighborhood that had to be flushed out over years. And of course, no one owned up to it until they were caught red-handed. So the chemistry professor or teacher in this case took um, an example of those materials in his classroom and he made up 
the sludge and they brought the kids up to the front to sh- show them what was in it and uh, said, okay, guys, this is it. This is what happened. He kind of created a 3D model of what had transpired and the kids got a better understanding of the scenario. So he sent them back to their desks and said, okay, now take the remaining Rice Krispies, the other half of the box, and pour it into the second Petri dish with the sludge. And to the kids' uh, amazement, not only did they not get a snap, crackle, and pop like they got when they put the milk in the other half, but they were amazed that the Rice Krispies just disappeared. Um, It was such a toxic environment. And the professor explained, you know, the environment very much affects performance, and it affects people. It affects, of course, the environment around us. But it's a great example of what we're talking about here. You could take great employees and put them in a, a very supportive environment, and you'll be amazed at what they can accomplish. Take the same great employee, and I'm sure many of our listeners can relate. You know, they may have worked in an environment that was negative or toxic, and they just don't have the same energy or focus or intention to perform at their best level. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the next several podcasts digging into this important issue of how do you best define, measure, and lead a high-performance culture. Thanks, Rob. We'll be looking more at culture next time on Exceptional Performance. Be sure to catch every episode by subscribing to our podcast. And for more info, please visit ProductiveLeadership.com. On behalf of myself, Rob, and the team working to bring you this show, thanks. We'll see you next time.